This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. It's the experience of value that is driving customers to be more loyal or to repurchase from companies. That's the voice of Eric Almquist. He's a partner at Bain & Company. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. Yes, and Eric is the real deal. I would actually say he's one of the most respected folks in the industry of how customers find value and customer experience. He's written articles for the Harvard Business Review, Marketing Management, and many more. This really is a fantastic show. If you want to understand what customers value, this is a must listen. Yes, Michael. And Eric does this by taking us through step-by-step his elements of value framework. Now, this is a piece of research that he contributed to at Bain, and it's basically a pyramid or a hierarchy of what B2B customers actually value. So, we started off by asking Eric to talk us through how the research came about. So, I began to think about types of value that are delivered to customers. And of course, I've been aware of Abraham Maslow for years, as as had most business people. The problem with the Maslow hierarchy is that it's really academic, has to do with human motivation more than, let's say, how customers behave or how businesses can deliver value to customers. And for those who maybe aren't familiar, do you want to maybe just touch on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? It's a very famous pyramid. Yeah. Abraham Maslow was a psychologist, but he developed something called the hierarchy of needs, which is a fundamental theory of human motivation. And he was really the first psychologist to focus on sort of the positive aspects of life as opposed to mental illness. The uh, hierarchy of needs started with physiological needs like food and water and so forth, and then moved up to social needs like love and affiliation and all the way up to self-actualization, which has to do with achieving one's goals in life. He later added another element of value called self-transcendence that has to do with making the world a better place. And what's interesting about Maslow's hierarchy of needs is it's never really been replaced by uh, another fundamental framework like that. I remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in uh, business school, you know, uh, and it's something that I think a lot of business students are taught and then you never use it again. <laughs> That's right. It, it, and I've, I've spent probably 20 years at conferences where I might be giving a speech and I ask people, have you heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And all the hands go up, particularly with marketing people. But then I ask a second question, which is, how have you really practically put it to use? And you know, very few people volunteer examples. So it's, there's a big gap. It's very nice to think about, but it's harder to put into use. And that was our motivation is to come up with a similar hierarchy that could be useful to clients. So if you look at the elements of value, we started on the B2C side. There's 30 elements of value that we identified Some of those are very specific, like saving time, saving money, reducing effort, or organizing, very specific types of value that one can imagine actually delivering to a customer. So that's where we started on the B2C side. Maybe before we jump into the B2B elements of value, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the story behind how you came up with it, actually. 
So the process, it was very similar to how we developed the B2C pyramid, except I, I hadn't been thinking about it for 10 years. We reviewed a lot of our B2B uh, research that we've done at Bain over the years. And then we actually went out and did you know, a few dozen one-on-one interviews with B2B decision makers of various types. And from that, we began to construct a hierarchy that sort of paralleled the B2C one. But we know that the B2B world is quite different. And actually, we, as we worked it and interviewed more people, uh, we reduced it down to 36 elements of value plus four elements, which we consider table stakes. Those are things that are not so much areas of performance, but you have to deliver on them to even be in business. It's such a beautiful visual. And I love how you got the iconography to sort of visually show things like, you know, time saving and expertise and fun and perks. <laughs> I quite like the icon- iconography around reduced anxiety, which is a little teddy bear, which is nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mike. So, it's it's very visual. Actually, it's probably worth mentioning here that there are two versions of the elements of value framework. One is the B2C version and the other is the B2B version. And so, we're focusing this discussion on the B2B elements of value framework. But to kind of give you a visual explanation, it looks like a pyramid. And going from bottom to top, just running through the layers, the very bottom is the table stakes, followed by the next layer up is your functional value. The layer above that is the ease of doing business value. The layer above that, which is our second last one, is individual value. And then the final layer, the very top, the pinnacle of the pyramid is inspirational value. So, now that we've got a bit of an overview, Eric, could you take us through it layer by layer and maybe give us some examples on the way through? Sure. So, at the base of the pyramid, there are uh, a number of table stakes that are really absolute requirements for initial consideration as a B2B vendor or supplier. And those are, you need to meet specifications, you need to have an acceptable price, you need to be compliant with regulations, and you need to be ethical. Now, Some of these things one can get away with for a while. I mean, you could try to not be ethical, but eventually you're going to go out of business. And so a great example of that is when Enron collapsed, Arthur Anderson actually lost its license to practice and it went out of business in a matter of days. So, you know, you can fool some people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And so you need to deliver on these table stakes. If you move up, you see a band of functional elements. These are things like a B2B service that improves the top line of a company, helps them with sales or reduce cost or provides them with scalability or innovation. A lot of these have to do with the basic quality of what's being offered. This is how probably where most people stop, right? Like when we think of what's the value to my customers or you often hear things like what's my value proposition. It's often within, oh, we make you more money or we save you more money or we can help you with this innovation or we can help you do more of X, Y, Z. And that's pretty much where the conversation stops. And then what are your unique differentiators become product features? (laughs) We we talk about a lot of these functional elements as being uh, feeds and speeds you know, how fast the software is or uh, what its features are, et cetera. And, you know, historically, that has been a major area of competition. You know, we've all seen better widgets. But what we're seeing today really is a lot of differentiation that's occurring at the next layer of the pyramid, 
which is around ease of doing business. And these elements are around productivity, around things like time savings or reducing effort, transparency or information, could have to do with availability. You know, so for example, in some businesses, you have to have a supply chain that is never interrupted. I mean, if you're a major baker, you have to get flour, you have to get the basic ingredients every day. And if that gets interrupted, it's not easy to do business with that vendor. And then there are a whole set of areas that have to do with relationships, uh, responsiveness or expertise. Many B2B companies talk about themselves becoming more consultative, helping their customers solve problems. Even things like cultural fit. But we see uh, B2B players moving uh, even higher into the hierarchy, and the next level up has to do with individual elements. So, for example, uh, we have a block called careers, uh, has to do with network expansion or marketability or growth and development. And so Cisco, for many years, just as an example, provided a lot of training and certification to its customers to allow them to say that they were experts in Cisco products, which allows them to you know, get better jobs over time and so forth. And then at the top of the pyramid is an area we call inspirational elements or purpose. What's really interesting about this is just in the last year, we have been hearing many more CEOs and board members talking about, you know, what is our purpose as a corporation? We exist to make money, but that can't be the purpose of our firm. So we're hearing a lot about that. And in the IT infrastructure work that we did, uh, we actually had a, a firm, Microsoft Azure, that cleared our threshold at that level. And the specific element of value was hope that they delivered. And if you talk to IT uh, professionals in corporations, you know, many of them are very sick of dealing with complex software systems, with, you know, owning their own equipment and dealing with the complexity that just seems to grow over the years. And Azure has, in a sense, provided them hope that uh, they can live without that in the future. Yeah, Eric, that's a great summary. And just to recap, that is the B2B elements of value framework. And we're going to put a link to view that framework in the episode show notes. And so what's really interesting is we've got this elements of value framework, which has the 36 elements themselves, and of course, the four table stakes. And so my assumption is that businesses are delivering on some number of these, you know, they're not hitting all 36, of course. And so in the research that you've done so far, what's the average? What number are most businesses hitting on? There's a tremendous range of performance on the elements of value. But one of the surprising things to us in our research was that when we saw the initial ratings on the B2B side, this was from a survey of about 3,000 IT decision makers and people who recommend things in businesses. The ratings were across the board for both insurance and IT infrastructure, higher than what we saw on the, the B2C side. And we asked ourselves, why would the ratings be higher? So in our survey, if 50% of respondents give a company an 8, 9, or 10 on one of the elements of value, let's say Apple, on design aesthetics. We declared that as threshold. 
But when we looked at that on the B2B side, many of the players were clearing that threshold. So we said, you know, this is, we're going to set the threshold higher on the B2B <laughs> side. So we set it at 65%. And yet the range we saw in IT infrastructure was basically there are a couple players, I won't name them, who are actually delivering on no elements of value at that threshold. And then at the other end, you have uh, companies like IBM uh, and Microsoft Azure that are, uh, Azure delivered on 19 elements of value. IBM is up in the, I think it was around 18 or 17. These are companies that are very impressive in the value that they deliver. And that if you just talk to IT decision makers, they are extremely enthusiastic. And it used to be that, you know, some of the IT infrastructure players were so brutally sales focused that their customers, all they, whenever they got a call from, from their vendor, they just assumed that these people are going to try to sell them stuff. We heard jokes that, you know, they won't leave the office until we sign a requisition form. <laughs> and, uh, and no, seriously. And, or they'll wait out in the parking lot till you come out at five o'clock. <laughs> and uh, companies like Azure and, and IBM have a very different reputation and they are clearing all the way up the pyramid. I look at what you define as an element of value in this model here, in this framework, as an element of customer experience as well. And so things like design and aesthetics or the ability to save me time or reduce my efforts or how responsive you are for a complaint or an issue. Those things are very fundamental and we talk about them a lot on this show, but you've just put together this really nice framework that kind of pulls it all together. How does this model match up with something like NPS, you know, Net Promoter Score and this whole kind of field of customer experience? So, uh, as you know, Bain and Company uh, was one of the first companies to do the research on uh, the NPS question, Net Promoter Score. Uh, it goes back to the early 2000s. That wonderful paper, what is it? The, the Ultimate Question. The Ultimate Question, right. That was the first book, actually. I have a tremendous respect for NPS. And in fact, in all of our analyses with the elements of value, we have uh, used NPS as a dependent variable to try to understand what is important in terms of value that's delivered. So any element that correlates highly with NPS is obviously contributing to customer loyalty through that measure. Increasingly, I view the elements of value pyramid as being all of this value is expressed through experience. You mentioned saves time. We all know what it's like to save time or we avoiding hassles. We all know what a hassle is and what that feels like. And mm. are you ever mm. going to get out of the quagmire of talking to multiple sales reps, et cetera? As the world has used uh, NPS, uh, there tends to be a, a focus on fixing problems. And like Maslow, I sort of felt that in this framework, we should have things that are aspirational and more positive. In other words, things that we're trying to do beyond the basics. Mm. Reducing anxiety, for example, a great example of that, just from the real world, I don't know if you've ever flown on Southwest Airlines here in the States, but their boarding process is fundamentally different from every other airline. You know, typically, if, you, if you're flying on a conventional airline, you'll find that the boarding process is everybody crowds around the gate. They all <laughs> jockey for positions. You know, there's just a lot of anxiety. Am I going to get my bag on the plane? 
Southwest actually has a series of poles in the airport that have numbers on them. And those numbers correspond with your row number. And you actually have to talk to other people. Are you number three? Are you number four? And you, tr you have to sort of slot into the, uh, to the process. So asking customers to talk to each other actually reduces anxiety tremendously. And so that's an element of value that gets expressed or not through either really good experiences or really bad experiences. I view the entire elements of value pyramid as being useful for customer experience work. But I also believe that ultimately it's the experience of value that is driving customers to be more loyal or to repurchase from companies. All right, Eric, welcome to the quick fire round. This is our lightning segment where we ask you questions and you have 10 seconds to answer. Are you ready to rock and roll? Sure. All right, I will ask the first question. Your time starts as soon as I finish. Eric, what brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? I would say in general, Amazon is uh, one of my personal brands that I admire greatly. And I've also done a lot of research on them. Fantastic. What was your first job? My first job uh, was um, as a teaching assistant at Boston okay. University uh, while I was doing my PhD here in the US. Eric, what skill are you terrible at? I would say what I'm, what I'm worst at are meetings that have to do with any sort of process. They drive me crazy. <laughs> I, I, I don't like being in them. What are you reading right now? Uh, I tend to read uh, The Economist and The New Yorker religiously every week. Eric, what job did you enjoy the most? Well, I would say so far the job that I've enjoyed the most is being at Bain & Company. I spent 28 years at uh, Mercer Management Consulting and joined Bain in 2007. So I've been there almost 12 years and uh, it's been great. Who is someone that you really admire? I would say I admire Barack Obama uh, as a uh, pioneer uh, politician who became the first black president in the United States. Eric, what non-work-related thing are you really into right now? I have uh, spent my whole uh, life uh, interested in photography. Mm. And I have taken pictures consistently since, I've, uh, since I was 16. I've got a lot of photographs. Where do you go to upskill? Uh, you know, books, is it YouTube, podcasts, or, or somewhere else? It's interesting, depending on the type of skill, but uh, if you take Photoshop, for example, I do a lot of Photoshop work, I go to YouTube. You can learn almost anything you want about Photoshop. It's simply amazing. That's great. And lastly, what is your guilty pleasure? I would say my guilty pleasure is uh, chocolate. Uh, <laughs> I like chocolate. I like all kinds of chocolate. Chocolate and reality TV are probably the two top, uh, the two top <laughs> hits that we hear from people. <laughs> a bit of a challenging question. There's 36 elements of value on the B2B side and four table stakes. So, let's say there's 40 little bubbles on that uh, on that pyramid there. Do you think that's too many for a business to try and focus on? Otherwise, you spread yourself too thin. You definitely have to pick your shots. And that's why we do the, uh, the benchmarking. You know, it's sometimes easier to think of kind of the layers of the pyramid rather than the elements itself. 
and we do that with clients. But ultimately, we think it's very useful to have the quantitative data gathered at the element level, because then you can say, okay, we've really got a problem on simplification. You know, people are finding our software too difficult to use or integration, for example, that's a big problem, especially in technology. Or, for example, cultural fit or expertise. You know, we are falling short against our competitors on expertise. And then you can, of course, do further research to figure out, you know, what kind of expertise they're looking for and what are they not finding. So, you know, you can get pretty specific about areas of weakness or strength and really begin to understand them and act upon. I'd love to um, hear any examples either in the research or since the research has come out where an organization has picked one or two and then focused on the improving of that and then sort of circling back and then measuring uh, the improvement? Sure. Just to give you an example, we have recently done work in Asia for a manufacturer of rice cookers. Okay. And um, believe it or not, there are some new competitors in rice cookers that are playing on elements of design and attractiveness. Attractiveness meaning how does this appliance make me look to my friends and relatives and so forth? How does it make me feel when I'm using it? And these rice cookers are selling for over a thousand US dollars. Wow. <laughs> are they diamond encrusted? <laughs> Diamond encrusted rice cookers. Who would have thought a rice cooker had so much kind of thought process around the value it's providing? Well, that's the interesting thing about it. It's these are they look very different. Traditional rice cookers look like electronic gizmos, right? Yeah, they're pretty boring. Yeah, and some of them almost look like old CD players or something. (laughs) And so these new ones actually look like kind of beautiful pots, and the electronics are all hidden. So you don't really see the electronics and these pots look like traditional sort of rural Japanese pots and they're selling out. I mean, these manufacturers are sold out. So the Japanese have evolved to a point where they're very concerned about the aesthetics of their houses and their apartments, you know, very different than 30 or 40 years ago. And they're willing to pay for this. So our client, you know, we, we did the elements of value assessment. They are, they are working on this to, you know, counter these new competitors. But we gave them a, a deep understanding of what these new things were appealing to. So that's one. Another um, client is a telco here in the U.S. where we identified a number of areas in the pyramid where they could improve, notably in the lower left corner of the pyramid around just call it the convenience elements, you know, saving time, reducing effort, et cetera. An observation is that most of our traditional clients, that is the non-digital clients, need to work on that. And in fact, I call it the convenience gap because almost all of our retail clients, for example, have major gaps to Amazon. Now, we do know that they are improving, but the gap is so wide that it's going to take them uh, a long time until they close that gap. But it's, it's urgent because, you know, Amazon is taking share from all of these retailers and has been for over 20 years. If someone wanted to get started in trying to work out what their score would be on the elements of value, what's the easiest way to assess how they're going on this uh, elements of value? I mean, the first thing I, I recommend uh, to clients who are interested in this is to 
first of all, read the articles, look at the elements of value, and you know, get a group of people together and talk about where do we think we're strong, where do we think we're weak, and then where they think they're strong, they should challenge themselves. How are we really doing there? How are we doing versus Amazon on, uh, let's say, reduces effort? Or how are we doing uh, versus, you know, our closest B2B competitor? It's almost like an internal thought exercise. You don't have to spend any money to do that, but it gives you a structure for thinking about value. Then if they want to actually measure how they're doing on the elements of value, that's where we typically come in and we can do a benchmark. I want to ask an interesting question here. I think this model is great for kind of giving names to all the things that we inherently know are important. We can all kind of get started ourselves and have a bit of an honest conversation internally within our business and say, all right, well, this is what we're doing good at and this is what we're not doing good at. But when it comes to benchmarking, who exactly are we competing against? Is it our immediate competitor set or is it Amazon and Uber and Netflix? It's a very interesting question. And I think we all know that companies are competing against new forms of competition all the time. So uh, one of the things we looked at in our recent B2C research, which covered about 190 companies, and uh, we we interviewed about 45,000 American consumers. One of the things we looked at was how Amazon is affecting, for example, the entire mass merchandise retail category. And what's interesting is that between 2015 and 2018, the drivers of NPS actually changed in favor of those areas where Amazon is strong. In other words, uh, reducing effort, saving time, reducing cost, avoiding hassles, those are becoming more important over time. Now, we're, we're just beginning the analysis to look at other categories, but I think we all know that Amazon has sort of created expectations, at least in the United States, that people have for other companies. I recently had an interaction with my wireless carrier where my battery was dying on a relatively new phone. And they made me call a number, a call into a call center to schedule an appointment. And I was sort of horrified. It was like, you're one of the leading technology companies in the world. And I can't schedule an appointment online or on my phone. So I think those expectations are coming largely from Amazon and similar companies. Let's say we print out the the pyramid, the chart, and we're coloring in the ones we're doing well, and we're circling in a red highlighter, the ones that we need to focus on. And we've got, you know, spots everywhere on the chart. Where should we focus our efforts first? Which ones move the needle the most? Yeah, that varies by industry, actually. So one of the things that we found is that across industries, quality is usually the most important driver. And why is that? I think it's a couple things. First of all, we debated a lot as we developed the elements of value. Is quality an element of value or does quality apply to all the other elements? You're either good or you're bad at it or somewhere in between. But because in our research, our qualitative research, consumers talk about quality so much and they know what it is for a particular category. So if you talk about quality in automobiles, people who are taking a car out for a test drive will describe what they mean by quality. It has to do with the the look and feel of the interior. 
It has to do with the way that the parts in the body come together and so forth. So people can get very specific about what they mean by quality. But beyond quality, the attributes then vary a lot. So in telecommunications or in uh, social networking, for example, one of the most important elements is connects. So if you're not connecting with other people and your Facebook or Instagram, that's a fundamental problem. So you have to get very specific about your own business to understand where you should move. The one note I would make here is people tend to look at the elements of value and they see it feels almost like Christmas that, you know, all these wonderful things that we can work on. My caution is to focus on areas where you have a gap and typically on elements that for your industry are important. Uh, Work on those first and then think of other areas where you can go. For example, we know that retailers have a gap against Amazon and many of the functional elements. They need to work on that. But they also have stores. So they have the ability to deliver on some things where Amazon can't. Now, Amazon has some stores now. But for example, entertainment or affiliation and belonging or anxiety reduction, those are elements that are more effectively delivered face-to-face than through a digital interface. And I would recommend to retailers that they think about some of those higher order elements that um, they have their advantage relative to Amazon. They have stores, they have people. So that would be uh, one thing I would recommend. People often ask, are the higher order elements worth more than the functional ones? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. We know now from our last wave of research that the emotional elements of value are worth about 1.5 times on average what the average functional ones are. Interesting. So if you can clear a threshold on those emotional ones, that's good. Who interprets the value on the B2B side as well, right? Because what's interesting in B2B purchases, it becomes less like functional specs versus each other and it becomes humans making decisions the way that we make consumer-based decisions actually. And so, the interpretation of these value, is it the decider? Is it the stakeholder? Is it the people using the service? There are many different types of decision makers. You know, traditional purchasing agents actually want to turn everybody they deal with into a commodity so they can then compare them on price. So, they actually try to force you to not talk much about how you're differentiated because they really want to just focus on price. There are end users, there are specifiers, there are general managers, CEOs. And we have looked at some of the differences by level. It is true that procurement people tend to focus on elements of value that are lower down in the hierarchy. And it's also true that CEOs tend to value things that are higher up on the pyramid, having to do with either purpose or careers and, or, or other elements that are up near the top. Marketability, et cetera, yep. There are different types of business decision makers and they are driven by different things. And the other thing I'll say is on the B2B side, there's just more risk in decision making. And we think that's why the B2B vendors actually have to deliver more value than the typical B2C one. Right. Because if you buy, let's say, a hamburger and french fries, and it's not that great, well, you're, you're out maybe, I don't know, 
six or eight dollars. Right. But if you're buying a multi-million dollar software package that ties into your actual mission critical business operations and something goes wrong with that, that's going to be a problem for you and for your career and for others. So there's a lot more risk averseness on the B2B side. The last question that I had was the inspirational value at the top, which is you know, purpose, hope, and social responsibility. They sound great, and we all agree when we see them, and we're all believers in the Simon Sinek story, etc. How does this practically come to life in a value proposition? Well, there are some pretty good examples. In the United States, there is a, um, a company called Henry Shine. They make medical products. I think a large part of their business are dental supplies to dentists, and the dentist market tends to be pretty fragmented, and their salespeople develop quite personal relationships with dentists. Dentists tend to be fairly well-educated, and they have a very kind of a world-class social responsibility program that, that they've had for years. And in fact, the company was really Henry Schein himself made this an early part of their value proposition. And they make it clear to their customers that they're trying to make the world a better place through their business. You can order dental supplies on Amazon, but it's not the same. And by the way, if something goes wrong with that, it's probably not going to be quite as good as dealing with Henry Schein. So there are companies that are definitely trying to play higher up on the pyramid. If you go down one level to the career level on the pyramid, I think a great example there is uh, salesforce.com and what they've done with their Dreamforce conference, which occurs every summer in San Francisco, I believe. It is one of the largest business meetings on the planet, I think. And it's all about learning, networking, you know, building your resume, and so forth. It's all about that career level. So there's some very specific examples out there of companies that are doing good things with their value propositions up on the, the upper reaches of the, uh, of the hierarchy. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Our pleasure. Wow, what a great episode. Eric really brought the goods. He certainly did. And what I liked is we've talked about Bain & Company a few times on the show in the past. I think you've specifically brought up a couple of studies of theirs in previous episodes. So, it was really great to actually talk to the guy at Bain & Company who's written literally the article on the elements of value. So, let's go through our practical takeaways. What's the first one that comes to mind on your side, Adam? So, when we think about Eric's elements of value framework, it's designed in you know a pyramid and, and it makes a very strong resemblance to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I remember studying Maslow's hierarchy in business school and I think many marketing and business students do, but the problem is it's never applicable in a real world business sense. There's no way to actually make it practical and bring it to life. And so, what I really like about the elements of value framework is it gives all of us things to focus on and actually be able to bring this into existence. Yeah, the big thing that really hit me was when he said customer experience is effectively their experience of value. And so, when we think about value creation and all those different elements of value, the way that a customer can perceive value, that is the customer experience. So, when we have ideas of how we want to improve our customer experience, 
I would say before going into any of those pet projects and diving into them, it's well worth taking the team together and looking at either the B2B, if you're a B2B company or if you're B2C, so to consumer, have a look at all those elements of value and rate yourself. Like it's a great way to get started in practically making your customer experience better. The next takeaway for me was around how to actually get started with this. Yeah, it's super easy, right? Yeah, totally. So, ideally, you would work with Bain to go through this process. But if you wanted to do it yourself, obviously, read the articles that Eric's written. They're really wonderful and, and get a good understanding of the framework. But you can literally print this out and do a bit of a self-assessment on the 36 elements of value and the four table stakes and go, where are we doing well and where are we not? And I just want to highlight something that Eric said during our discussion, which was that you should focus on the areas where you have a gap. That's kind of the starting point. And as a follow on from that, you should focus on the areas that are important to your category, your industry. And so that kind of gives you two angles to get started with when you're comparing where you sit and where you sit against your competitors. The last thing that I'll say is when you go through this and you pick the ones, remember that there is bonus points (laughs) for uh, the ones that are emotional. Like if there's one there that says reduce anxiety for a customer versus improving our quality, while both will increase the value and therefore increase the customer experience, but you get bonus points if you pick the emotional ones. All right, so let's sum them up. Takeaway number one is this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs brought to life. And the second one is customer experience is essentially their experience of the value that you create. Number three, it's really easy to get started. Just do a self-assessment. Yes. And finally, remember to pick the emotional ones. You get bonus points for those versus functional value. Wonderful. Well, that is it for another episode. If you enjoyed listening, Michael and I would love to hear from you. Simply add either of us on LinkedIn and tell us what topics you'd like to hear about next. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am Adam Jaffrey. Yes, hit me up. I am Michael Momsen, M-O-M for Mary, S-E-N for Nelly. We'll see you next time. See ya. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rated. Rated provides a better way to listen to your customers, to understand what they're thinking to empower your staff and ultimately to deliver amazing customer experiences every single time. And they have a range of different ways of delivering that service. So, to find out more, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This podcast is produced in partnership with Wavelength Creative. This episode was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the show. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. If you enjoyed this discussion, head back into the archive. We've got over 30 episodes with some amazing customer experience leaders for you to check out. To find out more, head to the website, customerexperienceleaders.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. 